All right. It has been a while since we have been in the upper room discourse all summer. So let's take a moment and get reacclimated here, caught up on where we are uh, here in chapter 16. Uh, going all the way back, John 13 through 17 um, is commonly referred to as the upper room discourse because it takes place in the upper room, which was kind of the dining room in that context. Um, other people refer to it as the farewell discourse which probably speaks more to the meaning of it. But regardless, John 13 through 17 is the longest recorded moment and conversation that we have between Jesus and his disciples. The Gospels are full of snippet conversations and teachings, but this, along with the Sermon on the Mount to some extent, is where we are really led in on just a full conversation between Jesus and his disciples. So we, uh, our goal was to spend the year Doing that, joining that conversation, listening in, sitting at the feet of Jesus as he talks to his disciples with his final words before his death. My goal was to get through it in a year. I failed by two chapters. I promise, promise, promise I will get through these two chapters before the year is up. Um, We will not do one full year on two chapters. But um, in a sense, this actually providentially worked out well because 16 and 17 are really kind of a change. Um, The whole discourse is the final words of Jesus, but 16 and 17 are truly the final words of Jesus. 13 through 15, um, as you have been following along, hopefully, if not, you're jumping in, you know it's just been filled with promise. Uh, Jesus has washed disciples' feet. He's talked about them loving each other, talking about how much the Father loves him and he loves the Father, and all of these amazing promises um, and, and toward the end of chapter 15, though, where we left off, and certainly here in 16, things get real. There's a real shift. It's like a wake-up call of what this is truly going to mean to be a follower of Jesus. It's like a wake-up call to say, I'm actually about to leave, and this is what it's going to look like. We've been having this wonderful, intimate moment together, but people, I'm leaving, And this is what you're going out to. I'll help you conceptualize it this way. What we have been doing thus far in the upper room discourse for the most part has been premarital counseling. What we are getting into now is marriage counseling. I'm going to make that imagery make sense. In premarital counseling, I've got two people oohing and on over each other, enamored with each other, just sitting next to each other in my office, couch tangled up together in any possible way they can be touching each other that's appropriate in a pastor's office. In marriage counseling, I've had spouses on the, literally the ends of couches. I've had one time this, this couple that I love, they're actually doing really well. They came to see me. Uh, I remember the story. It was, it was, so they were sitting next to each other on the couch and we were talking about it. And, and, and the husband uh, just put his arm around his wife and she goes, we not do that. He's like, what? She's like, that. And he goes, touch you? I can't touch you? She's like, I don't know. It's just the way you're doing it. And he's just like, okay. And so we had to get into like, just how am I allowed to put my hand on her shoulder kind of conversations. In premarital counseling, um, the quirks are cute and funny and they kind of like inside jokes that we have together. In marriage counseling, it's like, if you do that one more time, I will murder you. 
All right, it's time to do marriage counseling, okay? We have done the, this uh, foot washing ceremony. Uh, we've done service delighting, love extolling, promise proclaiming part of the discourse. And then at the end of chapter 15, he, he begins to reveal what this is going to be like and it's going to be hard. Look at, look at verse one of chapter 16. I have said all of these things to keep you from falling away. Fall away, the disciples would say, why would we fall away? This has been amazing. They're like naive, engaged couples who have no idea what they've gotten into. No idea how difficult this is truly going to be. No idea what this will cost. Who could never imagine falling away. Fall away, what are you talking about? Well, it's time for Jesus to wake them up to what this will mean for them and what this is actually going to be like. And so let's let him sober us up as well this morning. I'm going to do it by answering three questions that Jesus is answering in our passage. What will happen to them or us? What will happen to us? Why will it happen to us? And why is it important for us to know this? So if you want to follow Jesus, what will happen to you? Why will it happen to you? And why is it important for you to know that? All right, verse 2 will be what will happen Three, why is, it, why is it happening? Four, why is it important? Okay, what will happen? He just comes right out and says it. They will put you out of the synagogues. Now, what Jesus is speaking of there is Jewish rejection and the persecution that, that the apostles are soon to face uh, from the Jew, Jewish religion. Remember, Jesus viewed himself as the fulfillment of the um, Old Testament story, and he viewed his movement um, as the fulfillment of Old Testament Israel. So this really began, began as a Jewish reformation of sorts, but here he says, they're going to kick you out of the synagogue, meaning they're going to kick you out of the religion. They're going to reject me, and they're going to reject you. They're going to call you heretics of some fanatical cult that needs to be Rejected, and that's what happened. That's what the Apostle Paul was doing, or Saul at the time. He was a zealot going to squash this heretical Jewish movement that had risen up. Now, you might say that doesn't apply to us, but it most certainly does. You see, the Jewish faith wasn't just a religion. It was an identity. It was a culture. It was a family. And so when Jesus says they will kick you out of the synagogues, that would come across to them as they will kick you out of your home. They will kick you out of where you belong, your culture, your identity. And there, we can start to relate. When you decide to follow Jesus, you lose your previous identity and culture, perhaps even your family. They will kick you out. They think you're being brainwashed by something crazy. They think you've joined some cult It'll be, we don't know what to do with you. And quite honestly, if this is who you're going to be, we don't want to have to do with you anymore. You're out. I vividly remember one of my best friends. Um, I went to Young Life Camp when I was 18. I was converted, came home, completely different. A few weeks after following Jesus, my friend, put, I, I vividly remember this moment. My friend put his arm around me and said, I want, I want the old Robert back. Like, who is this? And I, was, I said, man, I'm not coming back. This is, this is who I am. This is who I am now. 
And, and there was an enormous identity culture shift that took place in my little, whatever you call it. They got kicked out of the synagogues. I got kicked out of Henry Clay. But it goes even more severe. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. It's not just that they will reject you, they're going to kill you. Meaning, it's not just that they will, ha- that they want to- they will no longer want to have anything else to do with you. No, 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 they will want to end you. It's not a casual dismissiveness, it will be an act of persecution we want to end you now again you may think you can't relate to this because nobody's trying to kill you for your faith but I'll tell you this they're trying to end you it may not be as um, like this but we do need to remember of course throughout the world it certainly does look like this always 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 American Christians remember remember that our brothers and sisters around the world are being killed for the faith all day long as the scriptures have promised But it doesn't look like this for us. But even modern Western secular society is trying to rid itself of you. You do realize that, right? If you ever take time to get outside the Christian subculture, you're going to discover that at best they think you're really weird and at worst they really don't like you and don't think you're good for society. They don't want your crazy opinions as a part of public discussion and discourse and certainly not law. Right now, of course, I would say more than anywhere, it's the area of sexual ethics and gender. They just, the world that we inhabit just thinks that it would be a much better place if it could just get rid of all these crazy Christians with their crazy worldview and archaic ethics. But here's the thing. They are very sincere and genuine in that belief. I think it's both fascinating and important to note that Jesus says the hour is coming, not just that they're going to kill you, but notice how he says it. When whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They they will think they're doing what's right. Again, this is a Jewish thing. They think that they're honoring God by killing you. But this is the same, the application, I mean, on the most extreme applications, we, we, we look at terrorism and we think, how is that possible? How can they think that's right? And the answer is you're being very naive to the deeply held religious convictions that they have. They think they're serving Allah. They think that what they're doing is right and good and pleases their God. But off of extreme examples like terrorism, you do realize that the opposition Christians face in any culture is because people genuinely think it is the right thing to do. In ours, they are serving the God of progressive secularism. You have got to get rid of this caricature of, of this naive us versus them where the world is just filled with mean people who, who just hate us because they love to hate us. That's not true. They think they're right, just like you think you're right. And they are laboring after a cause that they believe in, just like you are laboring after a cause that you believe in. I'll share an email. get a lot of these. Um, certainly, whenever um, I write publicly, but... but um, after, you know, after, after we wrote about 
um, our public public um, apology to the community over over our investigation. Here, here's one of the emails I got. Again, many of them, but but this one I'll share. Do you accept homosexual people into your congregation? My two adult children are both homosexual. I'm looking for a new church home, but I won't go to a church that believes my children are committing a sin because of the way God made them. I would love to visit your church, but I need to know if you accept homosexuals without judgment before I would ever visit. Now, answer aside, by the way, that, that I love emails like that because it gives me opportunity to, to nuance this whole thing out and break down um, whatever preconceived notions they might have of the PCA and whatever. But how to answer that aside, what to do with questions like that aside, you know what I hear in that? I hear a mother who loves her children, who has deeply held convictions about sexual ethics and is so committed to those convictions that she would not even align herself with an institution that does not hold her same convictions and taking it further, she would prefer our culture to be rid, or to use the language of the text, to be killed of any institution that held to a historical non-progressive sexual ethic. And I get it, is the point. That's her worldview. That's her God. And she is serving her God faithfully. And that's what Jesus wants us to expect not just persecution, but persecution in the sense of they genuinely don't get you. And they genuinely think they're doing the right thing. So what will happen? You'll be rejected. Not just rejected, you'll be persecuted. And they will actually think they are serving God. They will actually think they are doing what is right in persecuting you. Now, why? Why will it happen? Verse 3. He says, and they will do these things... Because they have not known the Father nor me. His argument could not be simpler. They're doing this because they're serving their God. And they don't know me, the true God. Listen, conversion to Jesus is much more than soul saving. It is worldview turned upside down. Literally, he calls it being born again. Because that's what it is. Same world... Same person, but it's like a new birth into a new worldview. I think of Lewis's quote. He says, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, not necessarily because I can see it, but because by it I see everything. Jesus doesn't just save you. He completely, fundamentally reorients you. The way you view things changes. Now, if you don't know Jesus, then of course you will not see things that way. If you're not a citizen of his kingdom, then of course you will not understand the ways of his kingdom. Of course. And so Jesus says, they're going to do this to you because they don't know me. Now, what this does is it transforms the way we view persecution. Listen, it's not it's not you that people hate. It's your Jesus. If you were to abandon Jesus and join their worldview, it's not just that they would welcome you with open arms, they would celebrate you. What that means is that persecution is far less about you, it's about your God. 
caveat, <laughs> at least true persecution to that. That, uh, you know, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. If people don't like you because you're just mean, that is actually about you. Um, true persecution <laughs> is not about you. It's about Jesus. And this is what he's talking about here. It's not about you. So can we all just tone down the rhetoric and not take persecution so personal? Seriously, what, what this does is it frees us up to have compassion on those who hate us, to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, to pray for those who persecute you, to do all of these things that Jesus commands us to do. The reason and ability and motivation behind that is Jesus saying, look, they're doing this because they don't know my father or me. It's not about you. Calm down. Or to put it another way, more humbling way, you'd be doing the exact same thing if you didn't know me. So the why behind persecution kind of defangs persecution, I guess you could say. Don't take it so personally. Instead, respond with compassion, love, prayer, hospitality, service, and thoughtfully, lovingly, whimsically, inviting them to know the Jesus that they don't know that you know, which would utterly revolutionize their life and worldview. What will happen? They're going to persecute you. Why will it happen? They don't know your God. Finally, why is he telling us this? Why is he telling the disciples this and why is he telling us this? Verse four, I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Here's what he do. he's doing. Jesus is framing our expectations for what is before us. He is telling them, he's saying, I'm telling you this now so that when it happens, you'll remember that things are going according to plan. And this is so, so, so important. My biggest problem with Jesus being presented through the lens of prosperity, meaning if you'll accept Jesus, he'll make your life better. You know, I'm not even talking about health, wealth, prosperity stuff. I'm just talking about the idea that if you'll accept Jesus, life gets better and great and awesome and cheerful and all these different things. There's some truth to that, and then there's some real dangers in that. My biggest problem with Jesus presented through the lens of prosperity is that when this passage does happen, it is either Jesus is rejected because this isn't what I signed up for, that's the fall away he talks about, or people respond with something must be wrong with me, I don't have enough faith, I must be sinning too much, I must not be a true Christian. But if Jesus says up front to you what you're signing up for, not for a life of prosperity, but for a life of suffering, then when it happens, you can say with confidence, this is exactly what I signed up for. Jesus didn't lie to me. He told me what I was getting into. There's nothing wrong with me. Things are going just as planned. That's what he's doing. He's saying, I'm telling you this now so that when it happens, you will remember that I told you this would happen. That's how I do premarital counseling. I have a reputation as the worst premarital counselor there is. He's, he's rep, he has a reputation of being the best. I'm the worst. Because personally, I think it's pointless. I'll be honest with you. I, I, uh, 
I'm a big advocate for one-year anniversary counseling, or 10, or 20, or just every year. But premarital counseling, um, you know, they're just, they're just honeymooning, and, and it's, it's hard to do. But I know you've got to do it. It's part of the ministry, so I do it. But here's how I do it. I get real. I make, them, I make them get real. I make them face down their own sins and habits that will be a threat to their marriage. I literally make them answer that question. I make each of them answer. I, make, I say, husband, I want you to tell me the one thing about you that is the greatest threat to this marriage working. Wife, I want you to tell me the one thing that is the greatest threat. And they both answer that, and I say, okay, now I want you to look at her, and you tell her what you think the, the one thing in her life is I make them answer each other, and it's just, it's so fun. They squirm. But I make them face down their sins, their habits. I make them face down the difficulties of marriage that's coming financially, parenting, in-laws, on and on and on. I go to the point where it is not uncommon for people I'm counseling to say, should we be getting married? And when I have them there, I've got them. But you know why I do that? So that a few years later, when they come back to see me and the honeymoon's over and the finances are tight and the kids are consuming and the romance is dead, I can say, do you remember what I told you? I'm not surprised by this, are you? This is marriage. This is what you signed up for. Now let's get to work. But there's a greater point here. Because I can also look at them and I can say this. Look, I know it's tough. Boy, this is tough. But, but I need you to answer a question. Is it worth it? Would you rather have your husband and all the difficulties that he brings? Would you rather have your wife and all the difficulties that that brings? Sometimes, tragically, the answer is no. And I'm sorry if that was your experience. I really am. I don't mean to stir the trauma of divorce you need to hear me say loud and clear as a pastor that biblically speaking, there are situations when divorce is not just an option, but it is needed. But usually, usually the answer is, I'd rather have him trouble and all than to not have him and not have the troubles. And that's the ultimate question that Jesus is putting before his disciples this morning. Our passage is bookended by Two, I have said these things, verse one and four. Verse one, I have said these things, statement, verse four, I have said these things to you. The first one he says, I have said these things to keep you from falling away. Verse four, I have said these things so that you remember what I told you. So what has he told them? Well, go back to verse four, verse one. Verse four points us back to verse one and his plea for us is this, don't fall away from me when all this stuff starts happening. Because the suffering and persecution is coming. So here's the bottom line application of the text. Do you want Jesus knowing the suffering that comes with him? Or do you not want Jesus, that would be the fall away in verse 1, or do you not want Jesus and be spared the suffering that comes from him? And listen, I really mean that question. I really want you to answer that question. Please, please listen to me. It doesn't have to be this hard, people. You can be done with Jesus today and your life would be exceedingly more easy, easier. 
talking about marriage. I know, I know when, when preachers use marriage and, and kids stuff and singles sometimes feel a little alienated. So let me speak to you singles. Um, do, you, do you know how you could end your, um, your singleness right now? Just be done with Jesus. You could. The, the pool of candidates gets exponentially larger. And nothing is more painful than the Christian dating scene. Correct? You can be done with it. You can say, all right, Jesus, I'm done. And download the app and just find whoever and whomever will have you and go. And your singleness is over. And I could take you through all, all of your problems. Everybody here, I could take you through your problems. I say, if you would just want to be, if you if you'd want to just say, I'm done with Jesus, this problem could be over. You can start being greedy with your money. You can say, it's all about me. You can, you can start looking at whatever you want to look at on the computer. Life could be a lot easier if you just say, I'm done with you, Jesus. And you won't have the persecution and the suffering and the world will love you. Oh my goodness, do they love those Christians who say, ah, I was a member of a cult, now, now I'm, I'm with you guys. Oh, they'll love you. So The world will love you if you will just be done with Jesus. Choose this day. Is Jesus worth it? Now the answer is 10,000 times 10,000. He is worth it. But you have to decide that. Is Jesus worth it, suffering and all? Now, I'll tell you his answer. And I think his answer might melt your heart and give you an answer. You're worth it to him. Do you know how much easier life would be for Jesus without Robert Cunningham? My goodness, how much have I cost that man? Do you know how much easier life would be for Jesus if he just said, I'm done with y'all? My goodness, what has he done? Become flesh endure tribulations and persecution and crucifixion and condemnation that I deserve. You don't think he counted those costs? I could imagine the father saying to the son, are you sure you want to do this? You know what it's going to take to have them? And his answer is the cross. Apparently, There is no amount of suffering and persecution that Jesus would not endure to have you. You're worth it to him. Now, let his love for you inflame and inform the answer to this question that he is asking you. Is Jesus worth it? Suffering and all. Persecution and all. Is Jesus worth it? He is Let me pray that that would be so in all of our hearts. Jesus, you are worth it. We believe it, but give us grace to believe it more. Jesus, we we do count it a privilege to suffer for your namesake, but give us grace to be more courageous. We're conflicted. In our heart of hearts, we say you're worth it, but so often our lives do not show that. But today, I pray that we would leave here fresh, saying, Jesus, you're worth it, whatever cost, whatever it takes. Jesus, you are worth it. 
Lord, we count it an honor to be persecuted for the one who was persecuted for us. And we come now to the table, a demonstration of your suffering, because there's nothing you would not do to have us as your own. In Jesus' name, amen.